This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Breakfast in Bed. Do you wish Mother's Day started with getting pancake syrup on the bed sheets? Try Breakfast in Bed today. Welcome to episode 83 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today, we are talking about El Yunque National Forest. And since El Yunque means the anvil in Spanish, it's also the only tropical rainforest named after the villain in the Club Penguin coffee bean game. And if you think that's too niche, you can just stop listening now. Just kidding, you can come back. No, I promise, it's gonna be a good one. El Yunque National Forest is a tropical rainforest in northeastern Puerto Rico, and actually the only tropical forest managed by the U.S. Forest Service. El Yunque has always experienced a relatively rocky climate. Being in the Caribbean, it happens to be the perfect spot for hurricanes to form, and has had its fair share of hurricanes throughout its history. However, Climate change is making these hurricanes more intense, leading to greater forest destruction more often. Additionally, climate change is making droughts more severe in Puerto Rico, putting El Yunque in double jeopardy. And sadly, not the good kind of double jeopardy, where Ken Jennings and James Holzhauer play two back-to-back games while Brad Rutter forgets what the capital of France is. So today, we're going to break down how extreme weather affects El Yunque, why that matters for Puerto Rico and the rest of the world, and where we go from here. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. If you want to take two minutes to help out the Sweaty Penguin, you can either leave us a five-star rating and review, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. Doing that earns you a special shout-out at the end of the show. Joining the Patreon gets you merch, bonus content, and a whole lot more. To start, though, I need to acknowledge the obvious. Hurricanes, droughts, and other extreme weather in Puerto Rico affect a lot more than El Yunque National Forest. It would be like me doing an episode on how inflation affects the price of Chips Ahoy. Like, yeah, but it affects so much more than that. I mean, it affects Oreos, it affects Nilla wafers, it affects all cookies, really. Now, damage to El Yunque does greatly impact nearby residents, as we'll discuss, but the entire island of Puerto Rico is feeling the effects of climate change. According to a study from Harvard University, more than 4,600 people died following Hurricane Maria. This includes deaths directly by the hurricane, by immediate effects such as collapsing buildings and flying debris, and as a result of poor healthcare provision and a lack of electricity and clean water in the six months following the storm. Perhaps just as scary a story as the hurricane itself is how long the recovery is taking. Listen to Liliani Mendez, a volunteer providing relief during the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, share the experiences of her community one month after the storm hit. Driving around this neighborhood, it looks like the hurricane happened yesterday. Exactly. This is not moving anywhere. I mean, it's very slow. So that's kind of, we're desperate for that. So this is kind of the way through social media that they can see the reality 
of what's going on. Sometimes in the news you don't get everything, you don't get all stories, so... And what's the reality? How would you describe what's happening? People in need, people hungry, people that lost everything, house unhappy and clothes, nothing to feed their kids. Um, water, for, even for us in the city, it's hard to get water. The fact that the reporter noted that it looked as though the hurricane had just hit yesterday, when in fact it hit 35 days before, shows just how difficult the recovery in Puerto Rico has been. And I'm very intentionally using present tense here, despite all the blue zigzagged underlines Google Docs is throwing at me. Because nearly five years later, Puerto Rico is still feeling the effects of Hurricane Maria. According to an article by NBC News, thousands of homes remain unrepaired and covered by blue tarps. Recurring power outages plague the electrical grid that still has not been updated, and school buildings, roads, bridges, and healthcare facilities are deteriorating. Not only does this mean that people have not been able to get back to the way things were before the hurricane, but it also means that they are constantly reminded of the destruction Hurricane Maria caused. If you haven't already, listen to our 10th episode of Tip of the Iceberg, where our producer, Frank Hernandez, who is from Puerto Rico, talked about a recent island-wide power outage, which again reminded people of Maria and the fact that the electrical grid has yet to be updated. So when we hear from Frank, when we hear from Liliani in this clip, we ought to keep in perspective that Hurricane Maria, as well as other hurricanes and droughts, affect people in a much more direct way, in addition to the indirect ways via El Yunque that we're going to explore today. And with that, it's time for El Yunque 101. As I said before, El Yunque is the only tropical rainforest in the U.S. National Forest System. And for our only one, it's pretty small. It measures only 28,516 acres. For comparison, the Amazon rainforest takes up 1.2 billion acres, and Jeff Bezos owns a property in Texas that is 30,000 acres. That is true. So even if you mix up Amazons, it's still bigger than El Yunque. But even though El Yunque would be sneezed at by the Property Brothers, it is actually one of the most biologically diverse rainforests in the world. It has 150 fern species, 240 tree species, and 164 vertebrae species. Additionally, it hosts many rare animals, such as the critically endangered Puerto Rican parrot, and an entire section of the forest is populated by dwarf trees, or as they like to be called, short kings. El Yunque also provides a bunch of ecosystem services. For example, a drainage basin downstream from El Yunque provides about 50% of the water supply for the San Juan metro area. It's also one of the most important destinations in the Caribbean for ecotourism, hosting over 1 million visitors and contributing $5.5 billion to the Puerto Rican economy every year. Furthermore, part of the forest is protected as a, quote, experimental forest. And no, I don't mean an avant-garde section of the forest, where parrots get up on stage and play Liza Minnelli songs on the recorder. 
Scientists used the Lucio Experimental Forest to research into silviculture, which is the practice of controlling forest growth to meet human needs, as well as into forest regeneration and invasive species management. I know that sounds like a really toxic relationship, but I promise it's a good thing. El Yunque can still go out with friends on Saturdays. The penguin does not endorse climate change or toxic relationships. Unfortunately, all that is being impacted by climate change, and let's start with hurricanes. El Yunque has experienced three major hurricanes in the past 33 years. Hurricane Hugo in 1989, Hurricane George's in 1998, and the double whammy of Hurricanes Irma and Maria in 2017. If you've listened to our episode on tropical cyclones, you might remember that a major hurricane is categories 3 or higher, meaning winds above 111 miles per hour. Historically, it would only experience storms of this magnitude once every 50 years. So the fact that El Yunque has experienced three storms this strong in the past 33 years is staggering. That's like having your first midlife crisis, retiring with a hefty Roth IRA, and joining a Facebook pyramid scheme that sells earthly lie soaps before you turn 33. It's too much, too soon. And what's worse, these major storms are expected to become even more frequent in the future. If you want to learn how climate change causes more severe hurricanes, check out our Tropical Cyclones episode. But I'll give a quick refresher here as well. First, climate change increases ocean surface temperatures and air temperature, which makes tropical cyclones intensify quicker. If you remember from high school physics, heat is energy. Second, climate change leads to a rising sea level, which leads coastlines farther inland and which ultimately allows hurricanes to travel further inland. And third, climate change increases rainfall. You might say it precipitates it. No? Not even a badumts? Okay, fair enough. Anyway, warmer air can hold more moisture because there's more water evaporating, and storms that form over the ocean can then take in a lot of water. Eventually, they dump this moisture in the form of rain, with the same force as Northwest used to dump handfuls of glitter all over Jojo Siwa's hardwoods. So how do these freakishly strong hurricanes affect El Yunque? First off, they can cause a lot of damage to the canopy of the rainforest, or the area shaded by the crowns of the trees. Just listen to Dr. Grisel Gonzalez, project leader of the research unit of the International Institute of Tropical Forestry in Puerto Rico, assess the damage Hurricane Maria caused in 2017. So this used to be cover, <laughs> had a lot of canopy cover. You see now how the canopy is completely gone. So this is uh, quite dramatic because you see the, the immediate mortality here of the trees. You see the uprooting trees. You see the snap from the, from the top. Uh, with this event, the whole island and basically all of the forests have been have been touched by, by these, uh, these hurricanes. This change that Dr. Gonzalez observed, to go from having a full lush canopy to no canopy at all after one storm, is mind-boggling. And they don't make hair plugs for forests. 
According to a 2021 paper in the journal Ecosystems, this dramatic canopy haircut was widespread. On average, the affected trees lost 7.1 meters, or about 23.3 feet, in canopy height after Hurricane Maria. I mean, talk about a bad hair day. That's even worse than when I get out of the shower, and no matter how long I let my hair grow out, the top is completely flat for eight hours. Like, did my hair disappear or something? But while my bad hair day might not be obvious to everyone at first glance, the fact that El Yunque's canopy loss is, according to Dr. Gonzalez, is really concerning. Now, El Yunque has been resilient. The same study found that nearly half the forest gained greater than one meter in height between 2018 and 2020, a much-needed boost to its tinder profile. Maybe it could give my hair some tips. Not frosted ones, just advice. Although now that I've had the chance to think about it, let's let that idea simmer for a moment. Ironically, the regrowth was aided by the extra sunlight reaching the forest floor from the lack of canopy cover. But unfortunately, the regrowth is not returning El Yunque to the pre-Maria state that Dr. Gonzalez fondly spoke of. Maria's powerful winds disproportionately knocked over tall hardwood trees and canopy trees with lower wood density. I mean, talk about a dominatrix, right? And the selective removal of these trees favored palm trees and understory vegetation, meaning that El Yunque 2.0 is composed of trees with a lower canopy and higher stem densities. There's good and bad to this regrowth. On the one hand, the low-growing, dense stem trees are more likely to withstand powerful hurricanes. So with the projection that more severe storms will be hitting the forest, these trees will likely fare better than their predecessors. At the same time, palms and undergrowth do not store carbon as well as the hardwoods. This means that carbon that otherwise would have been stored is now in the atmosphere, absorbing solar radiation and contributing to climate change. So in a way, climate change is playing the role of both cause and effect here. Sick of if you give a mouse a cookie? Try if you give a forest a hurricane. Hurricanes also affect the wildlife in El Yunque. Take the Puerto Rican parrot. This is a beautiful green bird that is the only native parrot in the United States. Today, it is critically endangered, but the parrot was once so plentiful that when Christopher Columbus sailed past the Bahamas, he described the parrots as obscuring the sun. I mean, who needs a tree canopy when you've got Puerto Rican parrots? And more importantly, why did Christopher Columbus write that? The diary's only so long, bud, and you've got a whole new world to check out, right? There's a crap ton of parrots and move on. In 1975, there were only 13 parrots left, as opposed to the hundreds of thousands, possibly millions, when Christopher Columbus was whining about the parrot eclipse. A few aviaries were started to breed parrots in captivity, and done strategically to preserve genetic diversity. Before Maria, there were up to 50 birds in the wild, but sadly, only three survived the hurricane. All of the captive birds survived at the Rio Abajo Aviary, which is not in El Yunque, actually. It is in Rio Abajo State Forest, about 85 miles west. So hope for the species was not lost. 
But that was in large part because the Project Aviculturist, Ricardo Valentin, got stranded at the aviary during the hurricane, which when you hear it from Ricardo, sounds like a terrifying experience. It went on and on and on and on for hours and hours and days. What was the most shocking thing to me, I would say, was going out at night and not seeing the lights of the cities. That meant the destruction must have been unbelievable. It's honestly hard to fathom being in Ricardo's shoes, trapped in an aviary in the middle of the forest during an event like Hurricane Maria. And knowing that his bravery may have helped prevent the extinction of such a culturally significant species is certainly a lot to take in. Now, I know some people care more about important animals than others, but I'll just say that if you're not moved by the history or beauty of the animal itself, there are presumably concrete economic benefits to keeping the Puerto Rican parrot around. I say presumably because there are so few of them, we can't measure the economic benefits. But according to the National Ocean Service, each year, over 45 million Americans take part in birdwatching, spending approximately $41 billion on related trips and equipment. And I had to do it once in a biology class, and it was mind-numbingly boring. So I'm honestly kind of shocked birdwatching attracts 45 million Americans. Here I was, thinking I had a good attention span for getting through Interstellar. These people are staring at the sky. What's cool, though, is often this money is going right back into local communities. And if Americans are dropping that kind of money on birdwatching... It's almost a guarantee they'd come out in droves to see America's only native parrot if given the opportunity. So if wild populations do continue their recovery, that's an exciting source of economic growth for communities in Puerto Rico, and Ricardo certainly played a major role in that. But again, with hurricanes worsening, that opportunity is sadly under threat. In addition to hurricanes, scientists project climate change will lead annual rainfall to decrease over time in the Caribbean, meaning longer periods of drought. You've heard of pirates of the Caribbean, now get ready for dry pits of the Caribbean. But drought creates issues too. Remember our palm tree buddies that are taking over the regrowth game in the rainforest? Turns out, they're more vulnerable to droughts than the hardwoods and higher canopy trees are. Like, extremely vulnerable. It's like replacing the trees with those guys on TikTok getting caught staring at girls in the gym. They're strong enough to not get blown away by wind, but they still get destroyed because they're thirsty AF. Even worse, if this drought period closely follows a hurricane, the regeneration of the forest could be impaired. Regrowth requires water, and droughts make that complicated. There can be wind and water erosion, pathogen outbreaks, wildfires, and decreased plant productivity. Now I know what you're thinking. Throw the plants a pizza party and give them positive reinforcement. But it's just not that simple. Droughts also affect those important ecosystem services we talked about earlier. Remember how I said El Yunque provides water for large swaths of Puerto Rico? 
According to Dr. Cedric Van Meerbeek, a climatologist at the Caribbean Institute for Meteorology and Hydrology, droughts have a major impact on that. We finally started seeing some rains, which happens even if we're in a year of drought. What does that do? Well, it alleviates the drought problem at the surface. So that means that the vegetation turns green. We start seeing the biological life happening again the way it usually does. And so people forget about the drought problem. But the point is, even if in those months we get normal rainfall, we still overall, for the whole wet season, we accumulated less rainfall than uh, is required to refill our water reservoirs to recharge our aquifers, etc. According to Dr. Van Meerbeek, people kind of forget about the dry season when it's over, but there's a lasting impact on water levels that affects supply for the entire island. And with droughts becoming more severe in the future, this already diminished water supply will only grow scarcer. This is actually already playing out. More than 20% of the island is classified as under extreme drought, and 45% is under severe drought. Most of these extreme and severe drought areas are concentrated in the eastern half of the island, where El Yunque is. This extreme lack of water in the forest and its surrounding regions has led to the strictest water rationing in the island's history, with many regions receiving water only one out of every three or four days. This has caused businesses to close temporarily and public schools to cancel breakfast services. Also, the rationing of water has led Puerto Rican residents in severely affected areas to, if I'm quoting every single article on the internet about this, get creative with their shower schedules. And maybe that's the wrong word. I mean, I would consider a creative shower one where you break out a loofah or shower on the clock, which is obviously the main perk of working from home. In this case, creative showering is a lot less desirable. And Dr. Van Meerbeek doesn't even mention that according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, climate change also increases what we call evapotranspiration, where water stored by soil and plants evaporates into the atmosphere, leaving less in the ecosystem that could eventually be utilized. So while hurricanes like Maria might be the more obvious impact, Dr. Van Meerbeek finds severe drought in El Yunque has a pretty severe human impact as well. So where do we go from here? Well, there's the obvious answer, mitigate climate change. And that's really important. We talk about that a lot, and we talk about the fact that we talk about that a lot, so I'll let you check out other episodes for the various ways to do that. Today, we'll focus on how the forest can adapt to all these conflicting climate stressors. These solutions sort of fall into three categories, passive natural restoration, assisted natural restoration, and actual tree planting. Passive natural restoration is pretty much what it sounds like, leaving the forest alone and letting new species colonize disrupted land without interference. Assisted natural restoration is like natural restoration, but with a little human TLC. And that stands for tender loving care, not the learning channel. Although that acronym really never made sense to me. Unless I'm supposed to be learning about how to have too many kids or how to be addicted to eating sand, I really don't see the educational value. Assisted natural restoration would involve people visiting a recently disturbed environment and removing unwanted plants, 
but ultimately still allowing nature to drive the regeneration process. And then planting trees would be sort of a full-on human intervention, where we replant a disturbed area and monitor growth over time. And there are pros and cons to all of these solutions. For instance, natural restoration is a viable solution because it works in the absence of money and human capital. Oftentimes, funding and manpower for a restoration project is limited, so trees cannot be planted everywhere that they are needed. Leaving the forest be and letting it regenerate on its own will eventually lead to these areas being re-inhabited by trees. However, this process can sometimes be slower than simply going in and planting trees because it is quite literally watching grass grow. And I did not know until reading the draft of this script that there is actually a website where you can do that. You can watch grass grow. Like, why? Just go outside. That's worse than when people put a fire on their TV. And while governments and organizations can put restrictions in place to prevent people from interfering with the regenerating area, there's no promise that people will adhere to these guidelines. In the past, developers have illegally cleared large tracts of land in El Yunque National Forest. Furthermore, there could also be more frequent non-human disturbances to natural restoration projects as a result of the more frequent, more intense natural disasters that are likely to hit El Yunque in the future. Apparently, the hurricanes didn't hear about the government guidelines. Assisted natural restoration shares some concerns of natural restoration, and it also relies partially on manpower and funding. And funding is fickle so there's always a chance that the people participating in an assisted restoration project can run out of it. Despite all that, these two strategies often yield more favorable results than direct tree planting. For example, Nick Taylor, a lecturer at Dutchie College, did a project comparing a naturally restored plot and a planted plot on the college campus. The naturally restored plot regenerated quite nicely, Whereas, I'll let Nick tell you how the planted plot did. Well, so we're three years, three years on. The trees haven't grown in a huge amount. And I think it's because... Um, well, several factors. I think it's because the uh, degree of competition that they're having to cope with from all of the grasses that are around the trees. And also, having the ground ploughed just before uh, they were planted meant that uh, it was very much broken up so all of the kind of microbial uh, uh, the soil biota the, um, uh, the fungi were, were disturbed and so they're not doing fantastically well so nick's experiment found simply planting trees in a disturbed area disrupts the symbiotic and non-competitive relationships that develop slowly over time as forests grow back it's like trying to get a baby to go in the big kid toilet when they haven't even graduated from huggies they have no control over their bowel movements much less their ability to sit up and you want them to squatty potty like a pro so we unfortunately can't replicate nature on the other hand, planting trees does better than natural restoration when it comes to capturing carbon. 
A 2020 paper published in Science details how an actively planted forest stored carbon 50% faster than a forest left to regenerate naturally. This is especially important for El Yunque because, as we've discussed, the makeup of the forest is shifting toward trees that don't sequester as much carbon, and the natural disasters that are expected to hit the forest in the future are ultimately the result of climate change. Actively planting trees to store carbon could, in theory, bring the rainforest back to its pre-Maria carbon capacity. So none of these solutions are perfect, and maybe there are lessons we can combine from all three to find the best outcome. With the Lukio experimental forest being part of El Yunque, this region is sort of on the cutting edge of this forest disturbance research, and may be able to inform other parts of the world too. Speaking of adaptation, there are also strategies the rest of Puerto Rico can consider to either limit future forest damage or live with the damage that arises. Coastal ecosystems could be fortified to be a better natural barrier to storms. Rainwater harvesting technologies could be implemented throughout parts of the island to handle water shortages. The parrot aviaries I discussed earlier had to run on generators for a long time after Maria, so certainly better electrical infrastructure could end up helping El Yunque in a roundabout way. So there are a number of solutions out there, and honestly, this conversation goes way beyond the scope of this episode, because the impacts of climate change are being felt in Puerto Rico in so many more ways than just this one. And with Puerto Rico being part of the United States, Puerto Ricans are not only U.S. citizens, but also pay payroll taxes, business taxes, and estate taxes to the U.S. government. So for any of the solutions we've discussed that would require funding or government intervention, that responsibility falls on the United States. Frank talked a bit about this in our Tip of the Iceberg conversation, and I thought his perspective was so interesting, so absolutely check that out. Whether we're thinking on the scale of a few rare parrots, a rainforest, or an entire island, I know it's a bit overwhelming to think hurricanes and droughts are only getting worse with a warming climate. But ultimately, even if El Yunque is changing, it is a remarkably resilient forest, and there's so much we can do at all of these scales to both adapt to these changes and prevent the issue from getting worse. And if we do, we'll preserve important ecosystem services, grow the economy, and ensure the only bad hairdo we have to worry about is if I get frosted tips. No, but seriously, guys. I should, right? Do you love waking up to the smell of a fire alarm? If so, breakfast in bed is for you. We all know breakfast is great, but you know what's really great? Trying to digest food while lying down. But hey, at least humans don't burp and fart methane. Breakfast in bed. Good luck finding the whisk without mom's help, kids. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Maria Uriarte, Professor of Ecology, Evolution, and Environmental Biology at Columbia University. Dr. Uriarte, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ethan, for having me. 
First off, I understand you had a bit of a unique path to get where you are now as an ecologist. How did you become interested in ecology and what led you to your specific research interests? Yes, I had a bit of a unique path. My undergraduate degree is actually in business administration, believe it or not. And I decided after a couple of years of that, that that is not what I wanted to do. And I joined the Peace Corps, spent a couple of years in West Africa where I got interested in environmental issues simply because of what I saw. And well, I, I, uh, I've tried uh, various aspects of ecology and I found that I like forests best and that I like working in the tropics. And so this is what I do now. I work on issues related to forests in the tropics, which I'm sure I'm, we're going to get into. Almost exclusively. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you've studied many forests, of course. I know you've spent a good amount of time in El Yunque National Forest in Puerto Rico. Could you share a bit about your experience working in this forest? What's so interesting about it? What motivated you to study it? So what motivated me to study, I think this is a forest that is very unique. First of all, it's the only tropical forest in the United States. Well, I guess there's Hawaii, but it's a different kind of forest. And um, I was really impressed by the ability of this forest to recover from the hurricanes that hit it periodically. And of course, with the most recent one being Hurricane Maria, it's a beautiful forest. You can go from 300 meter elevation to 1000 meter elevation and go through four different kinds of, of forests with different species. It's gorgeous. It still has a lot of questions to ask. And I think for a scientist, you know, we, we always look for systems that have a lot of questions because they're very interesting. So for me, that was the fascination is why is this forest so resilient to these events that come every few decades? And before Hurricane Maria, you would have walked through the forest and you could not tell that there had been a hurricane that had come through in 1989. It, it looked completely fine. That's the question that interested me. And, and I was also interested in Puerto Rico as a, as a location for many reasons. And I know a lot of your research surrounds this idea of forest disturbance due to, uh, I guess, climate-induced issues, whether it be hurricanes, whether it be droughts. So it's interesting to hear you say El Yunque is very resilient. Would you say it's uniquely resilient compared to other forests, or is it more that all forests are more resilient than we may have expected? Well, I think the resilience of forests is a question. If the species that are in the forest went through their evolutionary history exposed to these kinds of events, then we would expect that they would be resilient. And in fact, we, we have some evidence that that is the case. Of course, the same question can be asked of fires, the same question can be asked of floods, of any kind of disturbance. The issue that we're confronting now is that we don't know if the magnitude of these events, in many cases, is within the range that they experienced over their evolutionary history. So that's the big question. The other thing that, that is really interesting is that for the Caribbean, the global change model project not only more severe hurricanes, but also more droughts. In fact, we just got funded to start a new project that we hope to start this spring, where we're going to try to understand the interaction between what happens when you have a forest that is recovering from a hurricane and it gets hit by a drought. So this is another aspect of research that I'm really interested in, how the different climate stressors are going to work together are they going to exacerbate each other? Are they going to mitigate each other? How is this going to work? I understand part of the effect of Hurricane Maria on El Yunque was that 
some types of trees recovered surprisingly well and others did not. It sort of changed the composition of the forest to more palms and less hardwoods. So Mm -hmm. what are the implications of that change on the climate and ecosystem? Yes, the palms do incredibly well. And this is because they lose their leaves. They kind of have a bad hair day, so to speak. And then as soon as the day after the hurricane, they'll be regrowing those those leaves. What that means in terms of carbon, for instance, palms, of course, have, if you ever gone up to a palm and actually touched it and pushed it around, they tend to have very soft wood, right? So they don't store a lot of carbon. We also know that palms are very, very susceptible to drought. In fact, they prefer to hang out in areas that are very wet or you know, partially flooded. In this particular forest, there are, of course, many kinds of palms elsewhere. And so what this means, it means that the forest, if this become more dominant, they would have less carbon and they would probably be more vulnerable to drought. So those are the two big things. In terms of animals and so forth, I don't think we know enough. The palms are a big resource for many animals because they produce a lot of fruit. Forests are also, of course, one of our most well-known carbon sinks. They store and sequester carbon, and that's a big help for the climate. And so I'm curious when these events happen, a hurricane hits or a drought hits or something like that. Obviously, you mentioned how palm trees can replace hardwoods, which would lower its ability to sequester carbon. In what other ways does that happen? Would a hurricane just directly lead to any carbon getting released? How? Absolutely. I mean, after a hurricane, you have massive carbon loss. Um, you have a lot of wood and leaves coming to the ground in the tropics, and particularly under wet conditions, a lot of that material will decompose and be lost to the atmosphere as, as carbon. However, what happens after a disturbance also is that you get a lot of regrowth and the regrowth is taking up carbon, right? So it's this dynamic of carbon loss after a disturbance and carbon uptake as the forest recovers. And there's been some work in the United States showing that generally those two balance out, right? You get a massive loss, but then there's regrowth and there's carbon uptake. What happens under more frequent storms is that the losses may outweigh the uptake, at least for the short term. Another thing that happens in the in the tropics, and this is work that my colleague Wendy Silver at UC Berkeley has done, is that you get repeated deposit of wood material on the ground, and not all of that is respired. Some of it is incorporated into the soil, and it's just not lost. So that's something that we don't understand very well. Where are the dynamics of the soil? You can also think that if these hurricanes become more frequent, we will have species that are more resistant and more resistant to hurricanes, in which case the impact on the carbon itself will be less. So it's a very dynamic process, the carbon dynamics of forest uh, after any kind of disturbance. It seems like the world is increasingly becoming aware of deforestation, human deforestation. We saw a major pledge made at COP26 to end human deforestation. Obviously, if we stopped cutting down forests, that would be a major step toward conserving them. But at the same time, seeing your research, I can see kind of possibilities where we stop cutting down forests, but forests are still being lost to other climate-induced factors. So to what degree is that a possibility? Is human deforestation far and away the main threat, or do we have to kind of be concerned about both of these things to ensure forest conservation? In terms of the impacts that we have seen so far, human land use is 
definitely the biggest driver of, uh, you know, sort of the carbon in forests. There's no question about that. I don't think that it's particularly useful to present these as, as choices because they are they are choices that we don't want to have, right? The other thing that I want to say also that the majority of forests in the tropics right now and in the world are forests that are recovering from something, primarily recovering from human land use, right? So they were logged, they were that land was used for agriculture, for pasture, for whatever, right? So the vast majority of forests are these kinds of forests. So there's parallels, and a lot of my research actually has also been on this recovering forest from human land use, starting in Puerto Rico and then expanding elsewhere. And the composition of community of recovering forests from agriculture and say from a disturbance are very similar. So we still have these pioneer species. We still have, you know, the species that come in. And those are the species that tend to be more susceptible to things like droughts, right? So the interaction there is very, very similar. I think the, the question for policymakers is, you know, what can we change? What can we affect? And where should we put our efforts? One of the challenges of, of climate change is that it's so incredibly complex uh, from not just the policy perspective, but also the science perspective. It's just, it's very complicated. I think for human land use, the policy issues are, are extremely complex, uh, but countries have control over their choices in what and how they manage land and recovery. And there are, like you said, even before COP, Many countries, uh, particularly in the tropics, had made pledges for forest restoration, which can be assisted or it can be what we call natural, right? Which is what happens if you just stop farming the land in many places. So I think we have to do both to answer your question. Of course, forests provide a lot of ecosystem services for us, even if we live nowhere near them. But for those of us who don't live in forests or actively research them, it might be a little difficult to see that or to maybe care about forests in the same way that we might care about an environmental issue that we can see how it directly affects us. So what would be your message to that segment of the world? Why is your research important and what should they know about it? I think we have to come to understand, and if we didn't understand it before, I think COVID has made that very clear. We are not only dependent on each other, but we are dependent also on nature, that we have to protect nature, that we have to be careful how we engage with nature. And ultimately, I think our long-term well-being, just as humans, not only of your community, but the entire globe. And I think COVID has made us far more aware of our global condition, if you will, that that requires that we pay attention to the things that protect us. I also think that it's important that for me, even though I live in New York City, I have to say that I derive uh, great spiritual strength from nature. For me, walking in a forest is a relaxing, lovely thing to do. And I wish that more people would find that and you know how enjoyable it is to spend some time in nature, even if you get bitten by mosquitoes. So that would be my message. And also, you know, again, a message from COVID that we are, regardless of whether you are religious or not, uh, that we are just one of many creatures out there and that uh, these creatures all have, you know, life in them and that it's a life worth preserving and, and caring for. Dr. Uriarte, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Ethan, for having me.
This wraps up episode 83 of The Sweaty Penguin. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. You get merch, bonus content, and more. Clips today came from AJ+, Zach Gooch, Bruce Thorson, Climate and Society, and Penwith Landscape Partnership. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownie Central. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Peril and Promise or the WNET Group. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week.